Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome, Rob. Good to have you on the call. Thanks, Michael, for inviting me. So we're going to talk about a few interesting things, primarily centered around the book you recently published. And I can talk about many things, but there was one line that I'd never seen written anywhere else in business. And I'm going to start off by getting you to elaborate on this. And that line is the destructive power of ownership. No one's ever talked about that before. So maybe let's start there. Because when you talk about ownership, it's usually about the great benefits. But you made me think very differently when you said the destructive power of ownership. Why did you pick that line? We believe that ownership can be quite creative and constructive, but often, especially when you read it in the press or you see it in TV shows like Succession, they talk about the destructive power of ownership. So we work with exclusively with family businesses in particular, the owners of family businesses. And it matters who those owners are and very importantly, what their relationships are. And if the relationships between and among owners are strong, you've got a really good chance to do well as a family business. If they're not strong, in fact, if they're bad, the destructive power, not only for that relationship, but also for the business, you have a few people typically owning the asset, and sometimes it's a very large asset with thousands of people working for it. And if their relationships become destructive, they can destroy companies. You know, when, you, when I read the line, and you also mentioned succession now, I felt as if I had a better appreciation of what that guy was going through in succession after having read your book. I felt some sympathy for him, to be honest. <laughs> I have to admit, I couldn't watch Succession. I watched the first episode, yeah, and I didn't like anybody. <laughs> no <laughs> redeeming qualities. And I'm like, that's not our clients. Yes. Our clients are awesome, and they've got some problems, but they're typically awesome people. So I felt, although they do get into, I've been told, some really good issues, the characterization of the people is, is all Hollywood, limited reality. Well, it's all caricaturized and it's meant yes. to get ratings, yes. right? But it does, in its own comedic and, you know, loop-sided way, boil out all of the issues you are talking about. You know, some of the things that were interesting in the book is this, you know, this common phrase about the third generation always squanders wealth. You always hear it. Everyone talks about it and then you put up the numbers and it's not exactly what people are saying. Maybe talk about that because that's very interesting. Yeah. There, there's a saying around the world in nearly every language. Yeah. In English, it's rags to riches to rags in yes. three generations. You know, you have a founding generation that creates a business. The second generation kind of stumbles along. And the third generation are a bunch of entitled brats yes. who destroy the company. It just ain't true. Yeah. It's a nice, it kind of is a ring and it's kind of a scary thing to yeah. say. But if you look at the data around it, 
we have found that family businesses survive much longer than publicly traded companies or private equity companies or companies that are uh, funded by the VC firms. One of the reasons is that most family businesses, not all, but most family businesses want to succeed across generations. And the yeah. ones that are doing it well do the thing so that they can just, uh, do it well. They they don't do the destructive relationship stuff. They do some constructive relationship stuff. So the problem we have with uh, the three-generation rule is it can be a self-fulfilling prophecy. We have yes, clients say, well, you know, yeah. by the third generation, it's all gone. And we say, well, let's, let's talk about that. Well, I think after reading this third generation rule, you've convinced me to have kids because, you know, maybe they're not going to wreck the business. Maybe there's a chance they're going to turn out to be these superstars. They could be, I bet. So if I ever have kids, I think you may just end up being their godfather. I mean, you've made it possible for them to be born. But it's, it's interesting, right? So, so where does this bad rap for third generations of family business owners come from? Because I've heard this everywhere. And it's well quoted but nobody ever provided any of the statistics. Yeah, the original statistics, as we understand it, came from a study done in Illinois. And I think it was like manufacturing companies yeah. and distribution companies, kind of industrial companies in Illinois. And there they did look at across generations and who got out and either got out because there was conflict, yes. like the relationship conflict, or say they chose to sell or they just got out because it went bankrupt because it was bad business. And somehow that got swooped, that, that yes. basic core research, which is, you know, a fine piece of limited research, got swept up into this global rule. <laughs> that should yes, just be, the global rule of thumb. I've seen just, it in adverts for private wealth management with banks and so on. Yep. Yep. We have clients who are in like going from the 21st generation to the 22nd generation. And you know, it's not too relevant to them. They, we have many clients, fourth, fifth generation, that they've made it through. It is possible. It's not easy, but it is sure possible. Don't don't think it's not. I guess if that's a double negative, I'm sorry. Do you think it is possible? Is a better way to say. It. Yeah, but and let's just unpack this a little bit. I want to make sure that everyone understands this. What you're saying is that third generation companies obviously fail. But the failure is not because the third generation may have done something wrong. They could have chosen to exit a business. That's why the business ended up um, folding up. It's not because you just look at the absolute number and say a lot of them fold in the third generation is because of bad management. And just linked to that point, and you mentioned this in the book, it's not as if they fail at a higher rate than public companies or private equity businesses. Right. That's the key thing is you need to make a like-for-like -like comparison. Exactly right. And uh, I will say, if you think across generations, a very good way, because across the world, yes. you see it's the same things happening where you'll have a founding generation, and then you'll have what's called a sibling partnership, which a bunch of siblings come together. And then that third generation, if they go that far, it's called a cousin consortium. So it's a bunch of cousins mm. owning the business Oh, together. I like that. Yes. And because cousins... Cousins have different challenges yeah. than a founder or sibling. Siblings have grown up together, typically. Yes. They know each other really well. And there's usually a lot of rivalry. And yes. the issues that go in a sibling partnership is usually you'll find the business is put into silos. You know, Michael, you'll own the, you know, the, uh, yeah. the business in this country. Rob, you'll do this. And Steve and Mary, you'll own these two other countries. They, they divide it up. 
cousin consortiums are not that way. Typically, the cousins don't know each other as well. So the challenge is how as an ownership group are you going to come together and make sure that you have the same values and the same purpose of the the business. You had a good example um, about the story of a family. You obviously didn't mention which family, but you said they spent a board meeting discussing who had cut someone's shrubs. Yes. And I was thinking that, you know, the, the problem with family-owned businesses, well, it's a strength and a problem, is that institutional knowledge is very personal. Every single personal slight that someone has ever given to one family member is open for discussion, right? So how do you manage that? How do you, how do you guide family business to, to work past that? The Rose Bush example. The Rose Bush, yes. A powerful learning time for me. <laughs> because you think, you know, I'd work for BCJ. Yeah. We had these board meetings with these big clients and they would act like board members. Yes. And then you go into a family business and it ain't always that way. This one in particular was so, so profound because they couldn't get to the agenda yes. because they had to talk about the slight that the brother cut mom's rose yes. bushes at their vacation house. And that was deeply, powerfully meaningful to the family. And they couldn't, they couldn't get beyond those issues to get into the business issues. So one of the things that family businesses do to deal with such, uh, such like variety of topics that are all resonant in the meeting, they create a very different kind of governance structure than a publicly traded company would have. Yes. And we call it, a, you read about it, but you call it a four-room model where there's, you know, there's a management yeah, like room and that those CEOs leading it, making hundreds, thousands of decisions a day. It's a hierarchical system and they're trading on competencies. Well-run machine, hopefully. And that reports to a boardroom. And you know you, you have very few people, not many decisions, overseeing the business, choosing the choosing the CEO, compliance and compensation. Not too many decisions here, approving the strategy. And these people are hopefully trading in wisdom, not rose bushes. And then you have an owner room with fewer decisions, and only yeah. owners are there, which we'll talk about a little bit later. The rose bush discussion belongs in what we call the family room, and the family room is another structure with family members invited in to that room. And they should be talking about family unity and developing the next generation. So now in our practice, if we see these rosebush issues come in, people will say to themselves, oh, this is a family issue. Let's get it yes. over in the family room. Let's get back to being board members. So it's about, it's not about minimizing the rosebush um, discussion. It's about teaching the family that there is you got to know when to have that discussion and when to not have that discussion. Yeah, I think that's really well said. You, you got to, oftentimes you have to have the discussion because uh, if you're, yes. you can't have the discussion, you can't move forward. The room and people will be, actually, that brings up a really good topic around what we call fake harmony. Yeah. So family businesses are pretty infamous for a yes. whole lot of conflict if you look at succession of the tv show yeah it's all about this, this terrible you know slap them down kind of um conflict harmful conflict we see that sometimes but not that often actually much more often we'll see something that's called fake heart we call fake harmony yes. which is basically michael that's really nice yeah it's quite passive aggressive and yes. it's not putting the issues on the table. The problem with big harmony is, or two, one is it eventually, typically, at some time, usually when you have to make a hard decision, will explode. 
And uh, where we try to get our clients is kind of a Goldilocks area, we called it, not, not harsh conflict, not fake harmony, but in a place where they can make decisions together. And that's really fun when you can do it because that's what great family businesses do together is they make good decisions together. That's the primary thing they have to do. So when you say talk about fake harmony, fake harmony is the impediment because nobody is dealing with the issue that needs to be dealt with before they can move forward, right? Yeah. So there's this time moves on. Right. Yes. So as time moves on, people have to age out of positions. So you yes. have a great CEO, family CEO. If you're in stuck in fake harmony, you've not prepared the company, the board, the ownership group for that new CEO. You're just kind of sitting on your hands yes. <laughs> waiting yes. for that CEO to uh, to do something. And you don't know what, and you, you wait too long. You, there's a chance of losing your business if you can't talk about the tough decisions that are in front of you. But that's assuming that the CEO, well, I think it makes sense. If the CEO needs the family to cooperate, everyone needs to know what the family is doing and what the CEO is doing. Let me build it in a different way. Yes. Which is, so in tightly held businesses, mm-hmm. like family businesses, there are not that many people, uh, meaning, you know, kind of 550, some yes. up to 700 you know, owners who are in charge, who are in charge, in quotes. They, however, will hire a board and hire, you know, a CEO, all yes. of whom board and CEO can be non-family. If there's fake harmony and the owners aren't talking about what matters to them, maybe like why do they own the business together, what they want the company to do, they'll lose control of the company because the board will assume, well, this must be what the family wants. Mm. Or the CEO will say, Here's my strategy. They didn't say no because they couldn't have yes. harmony. I will go do that. We've had too many clients. It's one of the saddest things we've seen in our in our work where a controlling owner or family will lose control of their family business because they can't have the right discussions to guide yes. the board and to guide the CEO. But you raised two important points, and I think we definitely need to flesh this out. I think the first one is governance in a family-owned business is not the way we are groomed to think of governance because it sounds as if you have a board, but the board really can't do much because all the power lies in maybe one or two powerful shareholders, family members. And depending on how the governance is structured, the entire board can be fired, right? Replaced at the whim of the owner. That's exactly right. So it's so different. So my background was with BCG, mostly yeah. with publicly traded companies, some family businesses. And you know, in there, we call, we call there's a pyramid with the CEOs at the top of the pyramid and the imperial CEO would make most all of the decisions. You've got yes. managers and employees. What we learned working with these family firms is there's this inverted pyramid on top. We call it the hidden pyramid. Yeah. Where, yeah, the CEO is still in the central because a lot of the resource allocation issues are, is maybe with that person involved. But on top of her or him will be a board and importantly, the owners on top of the board. Now, in a publicly traded company, again, ownership is really fungible. You can own you know, a thousand shares of Gerald Farms yeah. today. And sell it tomorrow. Yes. It, it doesn't matter. Most are institutional. You know, Fidelity will own a lot of General Motors this week and not next week. Totally different structure here. As you were mentioning, Michael, you have owners. And I think it's really useful to say owners who are people. Yes. With a personality With to boot. Brilliance of people and all the conflict <laughs> and foibles that people bring in. 
And people who have to make decisions together make a big deal in, in the handbook that governance and owning a family business and being in a family business, it's a team sport. It's not like mm-hmm. ski racing where you're individual. It's yeah. more like you know, football or lacrosse where it really takes some great coordination of players with different skill levels in different positions to play together. And that's hard in a family. I don't know your family, Michael, but my family, even my nuclear family, but my more more extended family, making decisions together is maybe not a strength of ours. We might be able to decide on where to get takeout (laughs) to make a decision to, you know, sell this division of a hundred million dollar company or have this dividend policy or to hire this board member or to change it so you can be an owner and you can't. These are unnatural decisions to place into a family. But when you say family, it means different things in different parts of the world. I'm sure you have clients in maybe parts of Asia where family means extended families who are very involved. In other parts of the world, family just means that the nuclear family In other parts of the world, the cousins have just as much say as brothers and sisters. So family is not an absolute term. It's very relative for where someone is located. I really agree. And and a lot of clients will work hard on defining their family. Yes. No matter where you are, if you're in Singapore or in India, how do we define family? And what's so both you have the family tree. Here was a patriarch and matriarch. Everyone who's lineage. Okay. Now, let's see. Is everyone whose lineage is that family or are spouses actually part of the family? Yes. <laughs> and some, some, and then the other cut through is ownership because you can have a family tree and it could be that these six are owners and these four are not. Is everybody family? Well, is everybody part of the business family? Is every part of the extended family? What rights and obligations do you have depending on the definition? It's a good thing to think through collectively because it'll be real big, uh, real big implications. My general rule, Michael, and this is, this is to be violated all the time, but it's a good starting place. I've learned so much from the families we work with. Some of the most awesome families in the world, the ones that seem to be most functional on the long term. Mm -hmm. Are inclusive. Inclu- what is inclusive? Like, Define inclusive. Inclusive means let's just play with the spouses yeah. for a minute. Because you could say, well, the family, that's grandpa's grandpa's blood relatives. Lineage. Yeah. Everybody who has his blood, that's family. Spouses, you're not, so you're not part of the family. Now you can imagine <laughs> being a spouse, yes. having married in, and your wife is part of lineage, but you, well, you're not family. And the power that the spouses have in family businesses, the number one thing they do is raise the children, yes. who are, of course, the next generation of owners. So if that spouse is excluded, he or she's going to most likely exclude their, uh, their next generation, their children. from. So you have an entire branch of the tree, which is disjointed in that family, for lack of a better word. Yes, and it's, it's, it can be right through. So a lot of our families go through these slow opening up. We work with yeah. some families who start very close with the information that they, that they share across the ownership and then the family. And then they find, oh, it's okay to talk about, oh, it's okay to talk about that. Yes. It's okay to talk about that. And then they find that the spouses actually have a lot to 
offer. For a while, in our client base, I think the number was 15 to 20% of the CEOs of the family businesses were spouses. So one That's way to look spouses and the definition of family is if you define it widely or inclusively, you've doubled your talent pool. Yes. Also, who knows better what you're going through than your spouse? Oh, yes. I mean, they know everything, right? There's very little handover required there because they're, they're living it with you. Spouses are so cool. These are the two things I've learned about, or a couple things I've learned about spouses. One is they're, uh, and this is general, but it's a good starter, which is their response function. The first thing that they respond yeah. with is going to be protection of their spouse mm-hmm. and of their children. So you'd be really shocked for that not to have happen. All the stuff happening in family business, tough decisions yeah, being yeah. made. Spouses to come in and say, "Are you okay, honey? Are you okay, my my children?" So, and that's natural. Don't it's not something to judge. It's just something to be aware of that that's going to be the natural function. Then you kind of work through that. The second thing, it's uh, the spouse. So you'll cut. You have a hard day at work in a family business. You have an argument with your brother. You'll come home. You'll tell your spouse about it. My brother did this. My brother did. Oh, there he goes again. Your spouse, it's a woman in this case, will harbor that emotion within yeah. her. You'll go back to work the next day and you'll resolve things. Oh, that was just a small, sorry, yes. sorry, made up, let's go. Probably you won't tell the spouse about the makeup because it's not quite as exciting as the argument. Yes. She will harbor it. So a lot of times we find the hardest views of the family and what's going on in the family business is because of these fights that are not reconciled in the spouse's yes. point of view. So it's very important to close the chapter, each chapter you have with your spouse and make sure that it's, uh, it's not just a negative. It's almost as if it's accumulated baggage unless there's some well said. opportunity. Yeah, it can be, to yeah. And, then, and then if you're thinking, I, you know, so many spouses have said to me, I know what happens in that family business. My yeah. spouse told me about it. Yeah. I'm not letting my children into that. Yes. And if it's that accumulated, so if they don't have a role other than just kind of the cup in which these problems sit, they can have that. We work really hard with a lot of our families to families, broadly inclusive, to have roles for the spouse. So they see more than just those one-on-one problems that can come home. So we spoke about spouses. There was a story, and I may, I'm not sure if I remember the name correctly. I think it was Marchese Antonelli, the Italian yes, wine yeah, company. And I like that story, but it, it raised a very interesting point for me. And maybe we can just explore this. For most of time, family-owned businesses were really father and son. And now we're seeing a situation where in this particular case, there are no sons to hand over the business to. He's got three daughters. And I think you mentioned that he decided to split the ownership, right? Yes. But are we seeing family businesses being at the front of making this transition to bringing in more females in leadership? Or do you see them following what's happening? And Where do they lie on the spectrum? Are they pioneers or not? Good question, Michael. So I'm father of three daughters. Congratulations. Jackpot. <laughs> I always have my I always have my antenna up, like what's happening with the women in the uh, in the system. This is statistics that I've seen on this and then kind of my impressions. The statistics yeah. I have seen on this is that family businesses are more progressive than non-family businesses having women take leadership roles in the business. Yeah. So that's that's great. But 
uh, it's still well behind any kind of 50, 50 or meritocracy. Um, so the statistics are good for family businesses, not great. We see, however, um, and I'll be a little bit, I want to be a little bit judgy, but I can't help myself being dad of three daughters. <laughs> you can judge once in the call, only once. I'll judge once and then I'll turn it back. Too many times we see the statement, it's getting less prevalent, but early on it was, oh, the boys will get the business, the girls will get the horse farm. Mm. There's so much. They're pigeonholing them already. <laughs> oh, okay. Let me tell a little story. Um, yeah. Our middle daughter, Ellie, Loves business and is an economics major and all that. She worked in Banyan for a summer internship. And it was eye-opening to me. I have a family member in the family business. I made all these mistakes and blah, blah, blah. But what one of the things she looked at was birth order in family businesses. And this primogenitor still wasn't a good idea, still a good idea, whatever. One of the studies she found was from McKinsey. McKinsey did this, as they're about to do, very good look at ownership models and what is more or less successful. Yes. The second least successful method of ownership and ownership succession, you know, they look at publicly traded Mm -hmm. and I think private equity, the two lowest, second to lowest was primogenitor, assuming that the firstborn son Mm -hmm. is going to take over the business and be the leader of the business. Mm -hmm. The worst was uh, government ownership. Yeah. (laughs) I can understand that. I work with some government run companies, but it said world to me that that model of first son yeah. really is not an effective model. Now, most competent family member, broader, McKinsey didn't look at that. The other thing that we say really clearly to our clients is too often there's a belief that succession is a, is a one-person thing. It's going to go from him. To him, yes. kind of, you know, the Lion King example yeah. from Mufasa to Simba. It doesn't work that way. Primarily, it shouldn't work that way because there are many leadership roles. Who's going to be the board chair? Who's yes. going to run the ownership council about how we make decisions as owners? Who's going to run the family side of the family business? There are all of these different ways to look uh, to be a leader in a family business. And I'll say it and then I'll regret it, but... The CEO, in some ways, is the easiest position to buy in the open market. Yeah. There are these things called, you know, executive search firms. Yes. And you'll go out and say, we need this. And they'll say, well, here are 12 people who could do that. Yeah. So you can outsource CEO. So don't look to be succession planning for just the CEO. Role. Mm-hmm. If you've got a good internal candidate, that's great. We can talk about how to develop that person. But think across your whole system, in particular, think about succession planning in the owner room. Because you can't outsource ownership Mm. unless you sell a company. And there's a lot to learn in ownership, and it's not taught in business schools. Yeah, I mean, what you say is very, very useful. And I think maybe we just go a little bit deeper into that. Because the way you are positioning it, based on what you've seen and successful transitions from one generation to another generation, it sounds as if it works better if one member of the family manages a function and serves as a check and a balance on another family member versus simply transferring everything to one person and hoping this person is going to pull it all together. Yes and no. It it depends. Uh, We have some families uh, who always go back to a sole owner. Yeah. And the risk, as you're mentioning, is will that person be up to it or not? Yes. 
And if they're not, these primogenitor problems that McKinsey identified, your goose is cooked. (laughs) You've put in somebody who who really has all ownership rights and might not do well. That's a risky, that's like all on black seven and whether or not depends upon the capabilities of that person. More and more, we see folks moving away to different, we call types of ownership, where you could have a distributed model where all family members over generations will have ownership voice Mm -hmm. and ownership vote. Those are two very different ends of the spectrum. Both have big challenges in that distributed model. If your family isn't unified, it's going to be really hard to stay together as a family business. But you can probably do different and more interesting things with checks and balances from a leadership standpoint and a governance standpoint than you can do in the sole ownership. And there, there are other models, too, we can talk about. Yeah, I think one of the things that, uh, you know, one of the misconceptions people may have listening to this is they tend to assume family businesses are small businesses. But some of the largest companies in the world, and I think you mentioned Mars Corporation in the book, are privately owned. Some of the largest companies in Germany, I think BMW is family owned as well. BMW. So we are not talking about small or medium-sized companies. We're talking across the spectrum of sizes. It's amazing because you do have, you know, a mom and pa's pizza. Yeah. It would be mom and dad owning a pizza shop, hoping they can, you know, or, you know, uh, cause and sons contractors. I mean, he cause, he's our contractor, is hoping to yes. the next generation because he got it from his father. And it's a, it's a two-shop, uh, it's a two-person shop. There are so many of those. Not everything we say in the book is relevant to them. They don't need four rooms and all this, but they do need to work on their relationships. They do need to think about who in the business. They got to think about succession planning and who's going to have the roles, who's going to have the assets, how are you going to build those capabilities. The big ones are also interesting because there are so many. It's yeah. kind of the quiet big ones. So Cargill, it's over $100 billion in wow. revenue owned by families or owned by a family. And how do you run such a big thing with with a really small owner group and keep it going for, I'm sure, I think they've been going for more than 100 years at Cargill. And this is true around the world. You go to India, you go to China, Japan. I was just on a call with a an owner of an inn in Japan, mm-hmm. 44th generation. Wow. Of, oh, <laughs> 44th generation. They figured it out. That's incredible. How do you... How do you maintain continuity over 44 generations? We asked him. (laughs) Yeah, because that's amazing. (laughs) Like, wow. And one of the things he said, the thing that he said that really struck was like, whoa, you know, I come from a capitalist background. He said, it's not about the money, Rob. You don't really care about the money. And, And then he expounded on that. And I can do that. But it's just like so fundamentally different from the way U.S. capitalism works. Yes. And my training at BCG was, it's all about total shareholder yeah. return. And if you grow profitably, you will yes. save your job, you will create wealth for your shareholders. This Japanese inmaker, this would be foreign ter- territory to him. It's not about that. It's being, he said, we, he said, I think it was at least two thirds of the profit was given away every year into the community. Mm-hmm. So let's just, let's go further there. A lot of these family-owned businesses could be much wealthier if they sold off, but they are making many times the collective decision to not earn the highest return in the short term to keep control. 
they are leaving money on the table many, many times, right? That, that's a collective decision they're making. They're deciding that in the long term, it's better to control and have this business than to make a ton of money because some private equity firm wants to buy them off. Is that a conscious decision you're seeing family-owned businesses making where they're making that trade-off? So many times, Michael. So, and it was shocking to me. Again, yeah. the objective function that I was used to, total shareholder return. Yeah. I think the objective function, like the single one thing that many, most family businesses yes. are interested in is survival. You mentioned that there was a good story where this guy spoke to his sons when they wanted to expand. I think you should tell that story. It's a good story. I'll never forget. We were doing a growth strategy yeah. for, I think it was in the Southeast or Southwest U.S. Yeah. And because we were hired by the owner, our yeah. CEO, third generation, and they hadn't grown. And he's like, well, I better grow this thing. I want to yeah. get my, my imprint. So we're like working on growth, doing some, some things that could be considered risky and probably were risky. We got called into the patriarch, who was, I think, 80 at that yeah. time, sat down at the table, <laughs> just as myself and other Banyan advisor. And he looked at us and he said, boys, it's not about growth here first. It is about survival, profits, and then growth. If you get those in the wrong order, we might not have a business to go to the next generation. And it just shook my world. It's like, oh. You know, oh, I get it. You know, I knew too many CEOs who pushed their company, you know, non-family CEOs, uh, who pushed their company to the edge because that's where the biggest profits could be. But then something bad happened, a recession, and it went over the edge and it went bankrupt. Now, what happened to that CEO? Boom, 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 goes across the street, gets another position. Yeah. That is not the case with a family-owned business. They don't want to do it. It, it was... From my background, I was shocked by how little debt family-owned yes. businesses typically, not all, but typically have on their balance sheet. Many have zero, often have negative debt. Yeah. You work with one client, <laughs> it blew my mind. You're taught at Harvard Business School, oh, you got to leverage up because that yeah, yeah. Going to get that whack down. Just what you're taught to do. And you, know, you do this and what the right amount of capital is, blah, blah, blah. Most of our clients have zero debt. We had one client who had two years of operating expenses on their balance sheet. It was an agricultural business. It was highly cyclical. And we're like, owners, why do you have two years of cash on your balance sheet? And they said, have you noticed that we have a business and the other ones who aren't here anymore, we bought them because they went bankrupt? Mm. It's because that two years of operating cash flow, we keep on our balance sheet to get through the downtimes and there will always be downtimes. Yes. A fortress so balance. It just—it's just, like the anti-business school lessons that you learn from these great family businesses. But it's—it's it's like what you said a few minutes ago, and that's very profound. When the owner fails at his business, it's a personal loss. If a CEO of a publicly com publicly listed company fails, he just takes some beating in the press, and he—he's almost certainly going to get a new yeah. job somewhere. And it's written in his package, probably. It'll do fine. Uh, exactly. That didn't do fine. So it's about uh, the risk you're willing to take because of what you have at stake. Yeah. It's the game you're playing. Is it a long-term cross-generational game? Game, Or is it the maximum really return? about my grandchildren? Or is it, let's, let's, let's pop this in five years and go. In many cases, I mean... I don't know how every CEO thinks, but from the few I've spoken to, in many cases, some of them are not even driven 
by TSR. They just want to be the biggest. They just want to do something that puts them onto the global stage. They just want to be the biggest car company in the world. Why? I don't know, but they want to be the biggest. And, it, you know, we talk about TSR, but that's in a totally rational world. And many times we are not rational. <sighs> the, and that's true. The, the burden that the leaders, the generation, especially, actually, let's go back to the third generation for a second. Many times the third generation, because of this regeneration rule is told to them, yeah. their primary goal is don't mess it up. Yeah. And that's, that's <laughs> kind of negative because if you try not to mess it up, you probably are messing it up rather than yes. really going to market in good ways. But there is something about they're really, they want to keep it across generations and they don't want to be the generation that didn't do didn't get it to the next generation. Yes. The expectation of failure is so big, it can be debilitating. Because it's your family. It's not like, oh, I blew it at work. I'm going yeah. to go home to my wife. No, I go home to my wife. <laughs> and my father-in-law is going to be on the, the phone. Owner. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that's in a sense, you know, in, in, a, in a listed company, you have the entire investment community, equity analysts, and you've got the SEC to police you. Yeah, you've got your wife and your father-in-law to police you, right? <laughs> I don't know. Choose your poison? I don't know. <laughs> Let me push on that a little bit. So that's exactly right. So what do you do if your wife and your father-in-law are your judge and jury? Wow, that's a really good question. What you do a lot is... As an owner, owner-operator, you, you become really clear. You need to get be really clear on what owners want. So say, it's, so, so say you're the CEO, non-family, but you're married in, and then your wife and her dad own the business. You really want to know what they want. It starts there. Yes. What owners want. Because it could be, we really want you to grow this. Or, no, we really want you to take a lot of money out of this. Or, no, we want to set this up so that every one of our next generation can work here. And if you haven't had the conversation about what owners want as the CEO or as the board, yeah. you're making the assumption that it's growth, yeah. be the biggest or whatever, and it sure could be not that. It's, we have a we have great client in Southeast Asia where I think it was eight, nine siblings, wow. and they all worked in the business. Yeah. Now, they weren't all as competent, yes. great business people. Some were, and frankly, some weren't. That's normal. And we yeah. said, well, why do you do this? And they said, it's a great joy to work together. So their objective function? Yes. The joy of working together. They happen to make a lot of money because in that, they were really good business people. But in the mix was the joy. And you, you can't, you can imagine some, you know, person coming in and say, oh, these four brothers, get rid of them. They're no good. Yeah, that's what a private equity firm would do, right? They would come in and say, well, you've got four divisions not performing well because it's the leadership. And you, in the book, you ask a good question. Why do you choose to go into business together with your family? It's a good question. Why did you make this choice, right? Well, again, it comes back to what is your objective function? And does everyone share that objective function? Let me play with it a little bit, what you just said. So it's not only why do you go but why do you stay together? Yes. I, we think that's the primary decision is whether you want to stay in business together. And primary, by which I mean the first decision is because if you don't, or maybe you have four branches and one branch wants to not be together, three 
that sets in motion everything in your transition. But if you all want to stay, that's a big statement. You can work off that. But it's kind of the foreboding topic because sometimes it's, well, Grandpapa, it's his legacy. Yeah. And it's not a very deep purpose in the end. If it's your grandpa's purpose, that's great. It has to be your generation's purpose about why you're staying in business together. Together, in fact, we believe is the single most important word in the family business and understanding that it's joint decision-making most of the time. It's joint decision-making. And how do you get a family which has all of its ups and downs to make good decisions together. That's now, I'm sure this has happened. When you've asked a family this question, why do you stay together? I'm sure some of them have said, yeah, why do we stay together? I mean, we, we just need the dividends and getting some professional managers and we'll go our separate ways, right? Yes. And it, it's fascinating to me. We have this one client. I love them. And they, they have some very passive owners. So it's a, it's a manufacturing business, a few hundred million dollars, one branch super active in the business, the other branch not. And geographically separated and kind of over, just they get some dividends, but not much more out of the company is what I was seeing. And I kept saying, why are you staying in business together? Why are you, you could do just what Michael was saying. <laughs> you could sell your shares and that could, you know, you could have Brown Brothers run your money for you and you wouldn't have to be involved in all the shareholder meetings and stuff. And it was so interesting for them. It was really about the legacy. They deeply believed in the company and what it does in the community. And they knew they couldn't get that from any wealth manager because that's just a selection of stocks. They believe deeply in what that company both means to the community, how it treats its employees, and what it means to the family and keeping the family together. Sometimes family businesses are kept together to keep the family together. And if it were all liquid assets run out of several family offices, they wouldn't see each other again. And that that didn't sit well with them. When preparing for this um, call, I read an article about Faber-Castell, the um, German pencil and make pencils. You know, they make these very nice ironed pencils. And I remember reading an interview. It's some fifth or seventh generation member of the family. And the question is, you know, why do you do this? Because he said, we do it better than anyone else. Yes. Isn't that awesome? It was not about the money. I mean, I read that interview and I felt I was speaking to the chief designer of Hermes. There was nothing about efficiency measures. There was nothing about cost reduction. There was not any discussion about how they're going to shut down factories in Mexico, move them to Vietnam because it's cheaper. It was all about because we do it better than anyone else and we like doing it. Isn't that cool? I mean, think about you know, your purpose you know, as an individual or as a yeah. family. You could, you could say, we're really good at this and we add a lot of value. We're the best in the world at this. You look at that stance versus, you know, I have a million dollars in yeah. the bank. I want the highest return. <laughs> yes. I mean, how many people just look at returns, right? It's not about the craftsmanship, the pride. It's about putting your signature. That's your family name on a pencil that goes out. And you want someone to have the best experience with a pencil. That's a family business. Yes. And it's interesting. We find that identity is a big, important notion in family firms. Because if your name's on the door, you can really identify with that. And there can be both. I think you're mentioning very positive 
and can be negative. Identity. There can also be very negative associations with identity where, um, you know, sometimes we'll find next generation, but this is a story that hit me big, which was, um, it was a CEO, family owner, CEO, large chemical company, I believe. And he was in his sixties and we were talking to him about succession for the next generation. And in the middle of the conversation, he broke down in tears. He's just like, tough guy. We're like, are you okay? Yeah. And he said, I need to tell you the truth. I never wanted this job. I never wanted to do this job. I wanted to be, uh, I think for him, it was a nuclear physicist. That yeah. was my passion. Instead, I've done a good job here. But I was forced in by my father. And I'll never forgive him for making me spend my time here. So identity can be super positive. But it can be constrictive. Can really be tough if misapplied. I mean, that's, I suppose, you know, what you're saying is that family owned businesses have some amazing strengths because they're family owned. But at the same time, they have the same limiting factors as every business, and they have to find their own way to plot their own path through it using what they're good at and trying to minimize what they're a little bit bad at. Because we believe it, that family businesses can be the best form of capitalism, yeah. what, what we're talking about. They also can be the worst form of capitalism because they can destroy the business, they can destroy the family. It comes down to the family, right? Not individual. all families are the same. Right. It depends right. on the family and what is their reason for being. Yeah. And that, so where we come from is, so we look at these both kinds and we try the best we can in a social environment to figure out what drives the best versus the best forms of capitalism versus the yes. worst forms. We do think that it's these decisions that the owners make. You know, you're, you're talking about you know, we do it better. That's a deep decision. They're making a decision that it's not about revenue growth. It's about the control they have of their company and they can do something better. And that's highly admirable. When owners can't come together and they can't make decisions together and they lose their business and then they sometimes lose their family, it's super sad. But also now that it's Thanksgiving time, almost Christmas, it's nice to hear a story where someone's not just pursuing total shareholder return. Yeah. Because it's so rare. You read the Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, oh. all anyone talks about is returns and risk-adjusted returns. Um, but it, it's that it's that it's trying to find your place in the world. I think that's what family businesses try to do. And an outcome of that is they end up producing a service or a product that people want. And they just keep doing it because they want to do it. And if they're successful and make a lot of money, they're typically petrified of the negative, possible negative implications of making so much money. Yes. The, the question, like all of these things about strategy, blah, blah, blah. What most very successful family business leaders worry about is whether their children are going to be entitled brats because there's so much wealth that someday they'll be asked to have access to. Will the next generation have the grit, the drive, the, the values that successful people have, or will they be in Saint-Tropez on a yacht? And it's, it's, you know, it's a first-class issue, but it's a real issue in the most successful family businesses. You've obviously got much more exposure to family 
owners and the dynamics they have with their children than probably I have or most people would have. My my exposure is that, and, and I know it's not a representation of the entire world, but my exposure is that people who run family businesses tend to spend a lot of time thinking about how they're going to raise their kids. Yeah. And, I, and I'm not sure if it's more than the average parent, but it seems to be that they do spend more time thinking about that. But but what has been your view of that? I mean, are they are they the same type of parents? Are they better parents? Are they more deeply involved in planning or they leave it to the schooling system and hope a good product comes out at the end? How does it work for them? Whether it's every which way, I don't... Um, There's no... Let me, yeah, let me tell you what they... When we see some like remarkable behaviors yeah. within the within the businesses, you know, a lot of us parents mess up. <laughs> yes. the time they do too. Uh, but some of the things we we really admire in these early days, they don't talk about money much, but they do talk about the business and expose their children. I kind of flaky, but I call it the beauty of business. Yeah, uh, they expose themselves to the beauty of the business. We, we have a story in the book about Regina, who was on a who's a sugar beet uh, plantation with yeah, her yeah, father, yeah. and you know he breaks open a sugar beet, tastes that, oh, yeah. it's awful. It's in your blood, Regina. <laughs> <laughs> so many times, it reminds me. My father was a salesman for Procter and Gamble, and like Saturday mornings, we would go stocking shelves with yeah. uh, Clorox and Tide detergent. And we'd move the Unilever stuff over here and put the P&G stuff over here. I got appreciation for business and kind of what's going on out there. A thousand questions from that. The first thing they do is they really, they say it's not about the money we're making. It's about the, mm-hmm. the pencils we're making, yeah. the products we're making, the beauty of us our employees working together. The second thing they do is they really emphasize getting a job. Wow. Many, yeah, many of these folks, you know, wouldn't necessarily have to work as an intern. Yeah. Um, not have to work in the orchard, picking with the with with the migrant laborer, picking the uh, picking the fruit. And so many people that I admire in my client base have had these internships in their family business where they were on the ground level and it was, it was seminal to them. Yes. Even when they're in their sixties and seventies, they still, they still talk about it. So there are a lot of things that they do. A lot of it has to do with the kind of exposure. And I, I think the key word is the appreciation they build for the you know the assets they have the appreciation of the product the appreciation for the people and appreciation of just what it takes to to run a great business and if you get that appreciation early in in the next generation i do deeply believe it lasts forever yeah i think one of the things that is very easy to forget is at the end of the day this is just a parent trying to raise a good kid <laughs> we kind of forget that, don't we? And there's no good handbook for that. <laughs> there's no good handbook for that. But when you read a book about family owned businesses, it's actually just a parent trying to raise a kid that maybe will, will help with the family business. But really, it's a parent trying to raise a kid. It's a parent trying to raise a kid and with this, but all this other stuff potentially yeah, exactly. coming at the kid. Cousin Consortium, you have to get to know your cousins really well. I think I think that could be your follow-up book, uh, Rob. 
you know, how, how to be a super mom or super dad <laughs> in a family-owned business. I don't think I'm qualified. <laughs> Rob, I really enjoyed speaking to you. I must tell you that um, I just remember this. Bill Medesoni actually mentioned you and Banyan a few years back. Oh. And he said, I, I got to speak. He said, Michael, you must speak to Rob. Because one of his friends from BCG joined you guys around that time. And he was telling me, you got to speak to Rob. He's doing some interesting work in family-owned businesses. But, but I'm going to tell you something that I read your book. And it's very rare when you read a book that is helpful. I'll put it that way. Oh, because I think a lot you. of books are written as marketing tools. But they don't actually help you. Thank you, Michael. And nice. I felt that your book was very helpful. I really enjoyed reading it. And then the second thing I must say is that it's very clear to me that you love what you do and you're very good at it. And I think that, you know, if we had more time, I'd love to speak to you, but it was such a pleasure. Um, I enjoyed it immensely. I think our listeners are going to love this episode. Thank you, Michael. Great questions. I appreciate the depth of field you got from reading the book and the great questions that came from it. I'll give your wishes to Bill, and I'm sure he's going to ask me to pass along. Please do. And I think he was referring to George Stock, who was one of my... That's the one. Yes, he was referring to George Stock because he wanted me to speak to George about something and speak to you. But we finally got to do it, and I'm glad we did. Me too. Thank you very much. Take care, Rob. Bye-bye. You too, Michael. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.